ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead, and once again this week, Dr. Howard Horowitz. Those of you who listened to last week's show will remember that we really started to get into the discussion of toxicity, the effect of lead, and some of the components and agents added to the lead, and what happens when lead waste is burned, which can actually make it even worse and even more dangerous. This week, we're going to get further into that discussion, talk about plasticizers and some of the new threats that are cropping up all over suburban and urban America. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Chuck Stead. This is episode two of our second season of Get the Lead Out. Thank you, Joe. In the 1950s, America fell in love with plastic. It seemed a new super compound could do anything and service every need in America. From toys to dinnerware, from upholstery to wardrobe, plastic was everywhere. Cellulose, a plant-based compound, predated synthetic plastic, which is an oil-based compound. DuPont moved beyond the simple cellulose product and into synthetics with the development of nylon. Cellophane was still a product name, but more synthetic than plant-based. From scotch tape to food wrap, Dow Chemical joined in with the plastic revolution, along with a small army of lesser-known industries rapidly pumping product into the suburban landscape. Among the more exotic plastic additives that have found their way into our daily lives is a family of chemicals known as biphenyls. Of these, it is the polychlorinated biphenyls, what we refer to as PCBs, that raise concern among researchers. PCBs are a group of synthetic organic chemicals that contain 209 compounds with varying harmful effects. They are known natural sources of PCBs in the environment. They can be an oily form or a solid form and have no taste or smell, so they can be hard to detect. PCBs have been used as coolants and lubricants in transformers, capacitors, and other electrical equipment, as well as old fluorescent lighting fixtures and hydraulic fluids. Although PCBs are no longer made in the U.S., people are still exposed to them from old transformers and capacitors, old fluorescent lighting fixtures, and electrical appliances. But a main source are old landfills and waste dump sites, such as is the case with the Hudson River, heavily polluted from the General Electric site at Troy, New York. Small amounts of PCBs are found just about everywhere, and the population may well be exposed to several micrograms of PCBs every day from air, water, and food. People living near hazardous waste sites may be exposed primarily by simply breathing the air that contains PCBs. The most common way infants are exposed is from drinking breast milk that contains PCBs and from the mother when the infant is still in the womb. A common means of exposure is from eating meat or fish that contain PCBs. And another means of exposure is from breathing the air in buildings that have electrical parts containing PCBs. Animal testing has shown that PCBs can induce liver, kidney, and skin damage. The EPA has determined that PCBs are a probable health human carcinogen. The New York State Department of Health, that is the DOH, initiated outreach public education about a Hudson River fish advisory in 2009. This program is focused on a health advisory in respect to the harvesting and eating of fish taken from the Hudson River. 
Further upriver, nearer to the Troy Dam, the advisory rejected the eating of any fish, while downriver, below Athens, there were exceptions, but still a strong warning that women of childbearing age and children under the age of 13 years not ingest any Hudson fish. From 2009 to 2014, working with student interns along the shoreline at Rockland County, I learned that people still eat from the Hudson, in particular the communities of Ecuadorian, Salvadoran, Asian, and Hasidic populations consume a large amount of Hudson fish. Another foraged food source taken from the Hudson is blue crab. The advisory proposes that no more than six blue crabs be eaten in a week, and that is under the condition that the tamale, which is the filter organ, is removed. The students observed during the summers of 2009 through 2011, the annual crab fest held at Piermont offered up blue crab chowder with no regard to the tamale warning. They reported crabbers along the Piermont Pier expressed a distrust of government regulation and had little faith in government-funded science. If the threat of polychlorinated biphenyls is a challenge for the public to accept, then the danger of plasticizers is an even greater hurdle to public education. Di-2-ethylhexyphthalate, also known as bis-2-ethylhexyphthalate, is commonly known as DEHP. Much easier to say that, DEHP, and is a liquid used to make plastics more flexible. It is what is known as a plasticizer. Plastics may contain 1 to 40% of this plasticizer by weight and are used in such products as upholstery, flooring, tablecloths, shower curtains, food packaging, children's toys, and even tubing and containers for blood transfusions. These are all products made from polyvinyl chloride, PVC, but DEHP is also used in the production of car undercoating paint to prevent road corrosion and chipping. When PVC is formulated using DEHP, no covalent bonds between the two chemicals are made, so DEHP molecules can leave the plastic and migrate to the surrounding environment. The same is true with DEHP molecules being flushed out of a lead-zinc undercoating paint with road salt or wash or rainwater. Estimation of human exposure to DEHP is complex due to the wide range of items containing DEHP and the large number of variables influencing the amount of DEHP per item that could reach an individual. People are primarily exposed from food wraps that contain the plasticizer. Once the compound gets into the gastrointestinal tract, it is absorbed into the blood and quickly metabolized. In animal studies, DEHP has caused liver tumors in rats and mice. Based on these results, the National Toxicological Program has classified DEHP as a substance that may reasonably be anticipated to be a carcinogen. A more recent study lends support to testicular cancer with significant increased tumor incidence in rat testes at increased dosages. In these studies, published by C. Voss in Toxicology in 2005, DEHP induced high levels of the steroid hormones estradiol and testosterone. Such studies have been challenged by industry as it has a high stake in the production and use of DEHP. They've argued that step one in identifying hazardous compounds as having no observed adverse effect level, they call it the NOEL, N-O-A-E-L, NOEL, has not been established. 
industry has tried to introduce a very high Noel for impact on the testes. After much debate in 2001, the European Union, that's the EU, classified DEHP as a toxic for reproduction and initiated a discussion for risk reduction. DEHP has now mandated for labeling as to risk and safety, but this is only for packages of pure DEHP, and consumers using any PVC or other product containing DEHP are not aware of any such labeling. Then in 2008, the European Chemicals Bureau, that's the ECB, produced a summary risk assessment report published by the Swedish Chemical Agency that found DEHP had yet to be proven a high risk to aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems as well as human health, although it admitted that risk reduction measures, which are already being applied, should continue to be undertaken. As Jetta Rank from the University of Denmark has noted, it is not easy to understand the politics of the regulatory game because the issues are other than scientific results. Those issues set the agenda. Among the Ramapos of Ringwood, New Jersey, and Hilburn, New York, there is a higher than national average of male infant testicular abnormalities known as hypospadia. This condition involves the misalignment of the urinary tract and requires a surgical correction. The national average can be anywhere from 1 in 1,200 to 2,000. In the Hilburn community, of less than 1,000 residents, there are over 12 known cases of hypospadia. Studies from the University of Denmark have suggested that environmentally induced hypospadia does not readily correct with surgery. In one local case at Hilburn, a male child has gone through three surgeries up through adolescence and still suffers from testicular abnormalities. Here, the association be between DEHP and hypospadia is elusive and subjective at best. But it is not only the higher-than-average rates of infant testicular abnormalities that have been observed. Just as I killed a predator with malformed testes when I was a boy, other hunters and trappers in the 1960s reported similar discovery in the game they took. This would suggest that mammalian hypospadia was emergent in the 1960s with a dumping activity that introduced the lead and plasticizer-mixed sludge to the area. Biphenyls from PCBs and phthalates from DEHP have long integrated into our industrial production line. While PCB production and use have been regulated, their wide distribution and the ongoing production and use of DEHP both promise to further impact living tissue for generations to come. This is the result of industry being allowed to set the standard of proof higher than common sense would call for. An appropriate standard would be that of the precautionary principle. That is, a chemical is assumed guilty until proven innocent. A principle that industry claims is a threat to economic stability. One is left wondering about the stability of the nation's health, which brings us back to my mother's nail polish remover. But we'll talk about that in our next episode. There we go. Once again. Once again. It's about money. It's about money. It just seems like that is the determining factor throughout all these conversations. What are we going to lose? How much can we make? And, then, and, and that sets the, the agenda and the schedule. 
as opposed to what should be setting the agenda in the schedule, which is how do we protect the people? Chuck is correct about the migration of plastic molecules from from food cellophane and food wrappers into food that we eat. I'm Quantitative study, I've, I've read a number of them, which they actually, the people did studied samples of um, meat and cheeses that were, that have been stored in, in cellophane and yeah. in plastics, and they found those plastics, in fact, in the meats and cheeses, they migrated. What about heating? You know, you put Makes a plastic worse. bowl yeah. in a microwave, oh, my, in, and you're like... Anytime, oh, always warm, warming something up increases the um, molecular activity, so you'll get more, more pollution. And I don't know if they say it. They, some may even say microwavable. You know, I, I, we, we abandoned our microwave. Partly it wasn't ideological, it was just found ourselves using it less and less and realized that we didn't really need it anymore. Yeah. We, we have, we have a, an air fryer. <laughs> no, we have what you call it, a, a, you know, a, a, like a toaster, you know. Yeah, the convection. A toaster that toasts yeah. things is big enough to toast up. It's healthy. Stove, stove top. So we're good enough without it. So what you're saying is the microwave. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it harms you. Well, but. yeah, but clearly that there is migration of these certain chemicals, certain of them being toxic from the plastic uh, Rubbermaid right. dish, you know, the little Rubbermaid food keeper, you know, which, of course, I'm too lazy to take it out of that, put it on a plate or whatever, but uh, that, that there's migration into the food that is heated. Yeah, in that. yeah that's true. But I, wh- whether, whether it affects long-term effect on our health is not, not clear. I mean, yeah. getting, absorbing tiny amounts of toxics may or may not shorten our lives. You know, I, I used to think when I was younger that it had to be bad. Actually, as I'm getting older, you know, some, you know we do absorb a lot of toxics in the world, and, 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 you know, maybe we can just live with them. I'm not saying I approve of that, but it's cut part I have is doubt, you know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, I needn't be so worried about um, tiny bits of toxics that I'm taking in. Or maybe we could all live to 110 or 120 yeah, we if we didn't know. take it in. <laughs> well, it, it's worth studying. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's worth having a study, like he said, guilty until proven innocent is really the way to think about these things. Oh, or yeah. we won't even try oh, or look at them. You know, if you, you want to, if something seems like it could hurt somebody, it should be looked at as it could hurt somebody until we know it can't. Oh, clearly. So I, I, and, and, there, and that has been a big difference um, between the European regulatory process and the American regulatory process. I worked for the Office of Pesticide Programs wow. during those two years. And um, one thing I learned about it was that um, the EPA is very governed by who's in charge. During mm-hmm. that two-year period I worked there, I saw a dramatic change. 1979, it was Carter's EPA. And they went after the herbicide 245T. By the time I was, we finished that case, it had become Reagan's EPA. Yep. And Gorsuch was in charge, the mother of right-wing judge Neil Gorsuch today. Yeah. And uh, she was a friend of the polluters. We prevailed and got 245T off the market. But you know what? It's the last major thing that's been taken off the market. And that was 40 years ago. Yep. Um, since that time, we saw you know, like, whether it was Roundup or any number of things that have lots of toxicity and is well known, but right. they stay they stay on the market. Well, it is. I was going to say Roundup. There are all these court cases for uh, because oh, yeah. it's caused cancer. Oh yeah. And yet, I just bought a bottle um, over at Home Depot, yeah. 
Well, I haven't used it yet, but I'll tell you, it's sitting there, and I'm like, it's kind of strange. I can use something that they are literally. They've, oh, so they no doubt the, 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 the literature on, on the harm of it. I have pages and pages and pages. I personally would not be willing to use it. Don't use it, even even in a targeted way. Okay. But the reality is, it is there. Europe restricts it more. It varies from from actually nation to nation, but but we have a regulatory process that does not follow the precautionary principle. Right. The reality is, it isn't, and therefore we we live with the risk. I see it advertised as harmless. It's clearly not harmless. On the other hand, nobody's going to drop dead from exposure either, unless they're really you know involved in the manufacturing process. But you know, it really it wreaks havoc on people's immune systems. Yep. We and lived next door in Nyack yep. to a couple who regularly used Roundup to deal with the weeds around their house, and the houses are close to one another. So I begged him not to use it on that side. I said, I'll weed this side. Yeah. And I, I was weeding the side that was facing oh. our building. But they regularly used it, and they used it quite... And I tried to tell him, I said, this is not healthy. Oh, that's the liberal bullshit, he kept saying. <laughs> well, then COVID came. They both got COVID so badly. And oh, they boy. were vaccinated, so they survived it. But they got super sick. And I attribute that to their excessive use of Roundup and who knows what else, because they were just chemical couple. They were the chemical yeah. couple on the street. So Roundup is still as dangerous as it always was, oh, yeah. it and changed. it's still for sale. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <sighs> the question becomes, how dangerous has it always been? And that's, a, that's you know, again, if, if you say, well, does it, does it have adverse health effects? Yes, Clearly it does. Can exposures be passed from one generation to another? Yes, they can. But, but nonetheless, our regulatory process concluded that the impact on populations is not sufficient to warrant losing money. Regulation. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's it, to warrant yeah. losing money yeah. because it's, I mean, clearly you hear of all these cases, they say finally, okay, Roundup is absolutely causing cancer. Well, the, 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 the manufacturers are quite willing to pay cancer victims Cost in the same reason business. that, that, that yeah. other people pay, yeah. pay the, their victims, you know, for... Yeah. So J&J allocates, for example, J&J allocates a certain, you know, cost of doing business, paying off people who... Uh, succumb to cancer because of talc. Right. Yeah, that's uh, comparable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They can live with them. Some adverse legal cases. Just the cost of doing business. Right. Wow. You were talking a little bit about plasticizers this uh, this week, and one of the biggest new, or not so new, but but uh, one of the biggest contributors to that is artificial turf. And we find artificial turf, which used to be some, some new, you know, majestic uh, turf that you, you would see in, in NFL football fields and things like that from across the country. Now you're seeing it in high schools, like the high school in Vernon, New Jersey. And now even beyond the high school, you're seeing artificial turf being laid down in the community fields in Vernon, New Jersey, a little... At, at great cost, by the way. Oh, it, it, yeah. it costs literally millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah, oh, three and a half million dollars. Okay, the, the, the latest number that I heard uh, for the for the artificial turf fields over by Maple Grange Road. And th this is a public park for everybody in town, okay? And these are huge fields 
completely covered with artificial turf, and they are used. Boy, are they used. There's, there's kids on these fields and coaches all the time, you know, using them, enjoying them. What is the effect of, uh, on these children? It's just ad- playing on them. There are adverse medical effects. I didn't bring it, but I have a whole um, three-ring folder full of materials about artificial turf and the harm because we last two years ago we, we stopped it in, in Warwick School District. They were, they were planning on doing a similar conversion in the high school and we stopped it. I didn't do it alone, but I was one of maybe 10 people that, um, well, that spoke against it. And I have the literature. And it turns out, not only is it harmful to the children that, are, that fall and rub and play against it, but also the, the toxics go, get into the environment. I mentioned the PFAs, the volume is huge, and they're, they're going to just... So they can leach into the yeah, field. Absolutely, they the can and they will. It. They will leach into the And uh, along the with the artificial turf is the flex pave that they make the tracks out of now. Our college, yeah, right. Ramapo, is a flex pave track. Uh-huh. This is 70% recycled shredded tires and only 30% gravel, and they can brag, flex pave companies can brag, that they're using shredded old macadam that was taken up, so they're putting that to use. And of course, that's a petroleum-based macadam anyway. And right. once you break it up and add it to the recycled tires, then you've got, actually, for runners on, on a track, it's gentler than running on macadam, obviously, because it's got a little uh, bounce, bounce right. to it. But the thing is, visit any of those tracks on a hot day, and you can inhale the off-gassing. Well, you it's can smell clear. it. You yeah, can smell it. Absolutely. If yeah. you can smell and, it, you're and, breathing and, it. And it, yeah. and it is, and there's no question that, that it's, it has adverse effects. Now, it also is harmful where, where artificial turf is actually covering existing vegetation. Trees and shrubs are adversely affected by it because, sure. because the drainage it drains drainage down impacted, into the plant. You know, it, it's going right to their roots. And, and it also can sometimes, in, interfere, right. it can sometimes interfere with the, with the um, water flow um, through yeah. altogether. It, uh, the question, you know, I... I imagine the companies that make artificial turf and the biggest boast is, look, we're taking something, uh, we're taking tires and we're recycling them. Absolutely. Right. Making yeah. something yeah, a big good. sales issue. And now we don't have to dump these tires. We don't, and and I guess there too, is something good about that. But uh, you had said that um, once it's used, then it has to go to a landfill. My question for you is why can it not be recycled again uh, and it's that I I know it's not a good product anyway, but the the, the question is why does uh, artificial turf age out? Well, why does it age out? Age out? It yeah. gets Thank I believe you. it gets used because after eight years or ten years of stomping on it by the by athletes, the the blades of grass get broken and dented and and yeah. and, 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 and you know torn off and gaps form and it becomes less and less a smooth surface and at some point they was it's, it's shot. But can they? I don't know. When they recycle, can what do they do? I guess they it's, just. Is it what has happened it. so far is it's, it's, it's gone to landfills. Yeah, you know, and, and I think where, I, I think where it's expensive. By the way, it's ex- I, the landfill I, cost is significant for the for the for the school district. To I pay think for the that. the problem with the reuse is that there's a geotextile base that the artificial blades of grass are woven to. The blades of grass break down and become pressed into the geotextile base and it becomes difficult or perhaps even more expensive to reprocess mm. and separate them so they just make new and of course that's 
built-in obsolescence, you know, right. <laughs> making more money that way. Yeah, there's always more tires to be. Yeah, there's always and, more tires. And it may cost more, as you say, to yeah. recycle. I think that's what's the what they argue. Money. Anyway. So we can say then to communities considering artificial turf for their community fields, their high school fields, God forbid, their grammar school fields, um, that number one, the carcinogens or toxicities of this material do go into the air, do leach into the soil, mm -hmm. and do go into the human beings, their children, who are on top of these fields. Okay, we can say that, number one. We can say, number two, if you decide to invest, it's going to be expensive, three and a half, four million, five million, six million dollars, depending upon how many fields, how much space. And number three, you're going to have to replace the whole damn thing in about <laughs> eight to ten years. Right. Yeah. So how stupid is that? <laughs> you know, well, it's expensive. What's wrong with dirt? Can't you just play on dirt? You know, really, come on. Dirt's actually healthy as long as it's clean dirt. Now, it's, right. I sound like an oxymoron, well, but there is such a thing as clean dirt. Well, yeah. so I, ironically, I find I found myself um, there, there, there's a, a, a sod grower who I've um, often at both supportive and disagreement issues with over the years because we've both been in work for many many years now leonard debuck i don't know if you know len debuck yes he saw the boat anyway he um we we had a discussion about what he he was opposed to as i was to the artificial turf in in the war fields and argue that that he, that he he grows grass and the, the turf is good and so then um i i agreed even though without a doubt that some of that turf may involve chemicals being applied to it mm -hmm. i'd prefer um, yeah. if, if it's not in insane excess i'd prefer um, limited use of chemicals on the turf than artificial turf you know, and, and you know this brings up yet another little bone of contention that i have and that's that toddlers nursery schools for their outdoor playground area right. they often lay out um either artificial turf for the little children to crawl around on or what's also become popular and i Saw this done down both in, in Nyack. I saw the artificial turf right on that little street down by Broadway. But I also saw using wood chips. Well, this is all natural wood chips. Well, you need to know where your wood chips are coming from because wood chips are often trunks of logs that have been saturated with various herbicides and Creosote. pesticides too, oh, and creas, um, all this material that is then mixed in with the cutting and processing of wood. And that means it can now escape. It's given the opportunity. The morning dew, it gets moist. They can breathe it. So it seems reasonable to request that when people go for these choices, they do a little homework. Yes. Just definitely. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's just a little nose work because I don't know right. if you've noticed, there's <laughs> yeah. certain mulch that you can get mm -hmm. that really stinks right. i mean yeah. it's just yeah. really you know just acrid smell and you know you're smelling this and you're like like how could this possibly be not be harmful <laughs> you know just i could um the gas station just you know did all the shrubbery and they put this stuff down and i'm standing and it's a what, bright orange color too yeah, so natural yeah or yes. it's or it's <laughs> pitch black and i'm 100 feet away from it and i'm coughing i'm choking right. here right. you know smelling this stuff my wife very sensitive to this, and she, you know, we we have found a guy who creates his own mulch, uh, Richard Kosh in Burnham, New Jersey. He creates his own mulch, and it doesn't have any of the dyes in it, none of the colors, none of the anything. It's just plain good old fashioned wood. Now I don't know, you know, whether that wood is polluted. It's possible, 
but it doesn't smell. There's no acrid smell. That's a good sign for starters. It just smells like wood. That's all. And the one thing, the the, uh, creosote, which they use for railroad ties, Mm -hmm. and they used to use for all the telephone poles before now they're using... uh, Treated, which is a great it's actually copper. just as bad. It's just, it's as, just bad. as bad, right? Right. In fact, it was arsenic. It's arsenic. Yeah, it was arsenic. Now they've changed it over to it's ACC or it's a copper, right? Based copper base. Yeah. Right. Although the bottom, so, you know, the, bo- the bottom line is, yeah. if it's toxic to the insects, right, it's toxic to of us. Of course, too. that's a very <laughs> good the point. Bo- the line, if yeah. the insects don't like it, maybe. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it might hurt us too. And it, I just know from creosote because a friend of mine used to get skids of it. He was a landscaper and he had a connection and I'd go in his backyard and there'd be a huge skid of uh, eight by eight or 10 by 10, whatever they are, railroad ties um, that he had gotten. And I just, the, the odor from mm. that stuff, and even mm. when you touch it, of course you get turned black, it, mm-hmm. almost like a tar on you. But the odor was unbelievable uh, as we stood in his garage right next to it. I was like, I, I can't even stand here. So if I'm smelling it, I'm probably breathing it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we've uh, now determined that artificial turf and most mulches, and it seems like we have an industry that is focused on how can we make this stuff as unhealthy as possible? <laughs> But that's where we live. Well, it's an industry that's following the non-precautionary principle. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the, <laughs> right. the dyes, one thing I'll say right before you end, is the, the dyes in every one of these mulches that I used to sell, a lot of, um, they fade very quickly. And, you know, whether it's the sun, rain, they're fading where are they going to me? I, I think if something's yeah, fading, fade doesn't go away. It's it's yeah, it's going into the soil. It's going into the air. You know, if the sun's baking it, it's coming up, and if the rain is pouring down on it, it's going down. And uh, again, I, I've seen maybe a couple of weeks before that bright, bright red goes away. Yeah, and uh, it can't be good. I don't know. Chuck, what are we going to talk about next week? What wonderful happy day. Oh, boy. <laughs> Save the best for last. Next week, we're going to be talking about nail polish remover, acetone. Well, folks, get ready. Go get your nails done now. That's yes, right. Get and we'll done. tell you what happened to you when you did that next week. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. For a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live Sales, for their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. 
How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. <laughs>